So last night I briefly touched into the theme of this retreat, which is New Year, New Beginnings. And I mentioned how one way we could orient ourselves towards new beginnings is to think in terms of where and how we take refuge to see if the strategies that we use for coping with stress, distress, suffering are beneficial for us or not. And if they're not, to understand how we might let go of some of those perhaps not so skillful strategies and instead strengthen our inner resources, qualities such as wisdom and kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, which you might recognize as some of those as being the four Brahmaviharas that we started exploring this afternoon. And we can think of these as a more reliable or more true refuge. So then in parallel with this exploration of true and what we might think of as not so true refuge, last night I introduced a statement that simplifies the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths into just three words, liberation through non-clinging. So we've gone from four noble truths to three words, and then I condensed it even further into two simple movements, clinging and release. So as I was exploring with some of you in the individual meetings today, here on retreat, we have a very valuable opportunity to experience directly. However, however, whenever we cling, whenever we hold on, wherever we crave, whenever we identify with experience, we suffer. Likewise, whenever we resist, reject, avoid or deny what's happening, we suffer. So clinging is an umbrella term for all forms of reactivity and entanglement with experience, any kind of moving towards or pushing away. And the opposite of clinging is really what our whole practice is aiming for, is release. And release in this context refers to letting go, to allowing, to letting be, to non-entanglement. And this release happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately leading all the way to the peace of Nibbana or awakening. Now, for some of you, terms like awakening or Nibbana or liberation might sound very lofty or remote or perhaps even unattainable and irrelevant. But I'm confident that every one of you has experienced at least some moments of freedom right here on this retreat. Any time that we have been able to release clinging, craving, or resisting experience, even if just for a few moments, right there is an experience of freedom. And over time, these moments of freedom gather together and become more and more our default orientation in the world. But, and, in the early stages of practice and often at the beginning of retreat, what's often more obvious, though, is all the ways we do tend to cling and resist. So tonight I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of experience that is often a source of struggle on retreat and in daily life. 
And that's our relationship to our mental experience, our thoughts, emotions, thoughts, emotions, moods, and mind states. So as we've been moving through the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness, I've been highlighting how it's a progressive path of practice, one that starts with relatively simple aspects of experience to pay attention to, such as the body and the breath. And then it gradually brings in more and more subtle and complex aspects of experience. For example, seeing and hearing, and then thoughts, emotions, moods, and mind states, until eventually nothing is left out of the field of awareness. And we are able to stay present, even with our mental activity, without getting lost in it. So as many of you know, the third establishment of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind itself. And it's the invitation to bring awareness to every aspect of mental activity. And as a kind of shorthand, I talk about thoughts, emotions, moods, and mind states just to highlight that there are different qualities, aspects of the mind we can pay attention to. And I'll say a little bit more about each of them soon. But the point is we're invited to bring awareness to our mental activity without clinging to it, identifying it, taking it personally. Which, as I'm sure you all know, is easy to say and much harder to do in actual practice. And the ability to be able to do this, to stay steady and present aware with the mind without getting lost, rests on two particular qualities of mind that I mentioned briefly the other day. These two are sati and samadhi. Sati being mindfulness, which we've been practicing over these few days, and samadhi, stability of mind, unification of mind, non-distractability. And in the suttas, the discourses, they use the image of two hands washing each other. Sati and samadhi need to be developed together, just like two hands. We need both hands to wash each other. Sati and samadhi need to be equally well-developed in order for the mind to stay present with mental activity. And yet, for most of us, especially at the start of a retreat, often our minds are pretty scattered, distracted. Samadhi is weak. Stability of mind is weak. And so usually at the start of a retreat, just as we have been here, we put some emphasis on bringing the mind back to the breath whenever it wanders as a way of strengthening stability of mind. But... Often we're not told why we begin by bringing the attention back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath. And so it's easy to develop the misperception that meditation is just about paying attention to the breath, just the breath and only the breath. And anything that not is not the breath is not meditation. And then to compound that misperception, we're told that if we notice the mind has wandered into thinking, we should come back to the breath over and over and over. 
And this can develop the misperception that thinking is a problem and shouldn't be happening. So as a result of these preliminary instructions, and sometimes people come on retreat and they just hear those same instructions over and over, especially if they just do a lot of short retreats. So I meet a lot of meditators who believe that mindfulness is just about the breath. In fact, one person recently on retreat said, I had no idea you could pay attention to things other than the breath. I thought mindfulness was the breath. And so we want to uh, not turn our meditation practice into a struggle with the mind, desperately trying to make it stop thinking. And one of the problems with this is that most people are already at war with their own minds in various ways, battling with all kinds of afflictive thoughts and emotions. So much so that sometimes all of this Buddhist talk about ease and happiness and peace and freedom can sound like a cruel joke. So we want to try to undo that sense that thinking is a problem. And so I've uh, called tonight's talk Befriending the Mind. Befriending the Mind. And yet for many people, it's this very sense of inner struggle with their mind that gets them started with meditation in the first place. And often people do begin to meditate with a vague hope that they'll be able to somehow get rid of that relentless stream of thinking, that torment of mostly unpleasant mental activity that often seems to start the minute we wake up and often torments us through the night as well. But what often happens when we sit down to meditate is not only does the thinking not go away, it can seem to get even louder and more insistent. And at this point, beginners will often tell themselves either that meditation doesn't work or they can't do it. And to me, it's tragic how often I hear people say something like, well, I can't meditate because my mind just won't stop thinking. Anybody had that thought <laughs> or heard people say that? This is a hugely common misperception of meditation. And while it's true that not thinking is the goal of some types of meditation out there, it's not true of insight or vipassana meditation we're not trying to control our experience. We're trying to change our relationship to it. So fortunately for us, insight practice is not about forcing the mind to stop thinking. Because as I'm sure you all know, that approach of trying to make the mind shut up not only doesn't work, it just creates more aversion. So again, we're trying to develop a wise relationship to our mental activity to release that clinging so that ultimately we can free ourselves from afflictive states of heart and mind. So coming back to the passage I quoted this afternoon, the Buddha was very clear about the importance of getting to know our own minds. That's why there are four establishments of mindfulness and not just one. So this, this afternoon I quoted the opening lines of the Dhammapada talking about paying attention to the quality of the mind. And I'd like to offer those same, that same passage, this time 
a slightly different translation by Gil Fransdal. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So I think all of us can understand in theory that our thoughts, our emotions, our moods and mind states have a very powerful impact on how we experience our lives for good or for ill. But practicing mindfulness of the mind is much easier said than done because our mental activity happens so fast. We often don't realize what's going on in the mind until we find ourselves in the middle of a painful conflict or some kind of giant interpersonal drama, or perhaps a 24-hour weekend binge of Netflix watching. It's only after the fact that we realize, oh, something was going on in here that pushed me into these unskillful actions. So many of you have heard me jokingly refer to post-mortem mindfulness. So sometimes we have to look back and see after the fact what happened there see the specific thoughts and emotions that triggered some kind of afflictive reaction. And then hopefully the next time we might be heading down that path, we can divert it, catch it a little bit earlier. And then next time, a bit earlier, a bit earlier, until eventually we don't even go down that path at all. So the speed of thinking is one particular challenge in befriending the mind. And a second challenge is that without some understanding of the Buddha's teachings, most people tend to take their thoughts and emotions quite personally, to believe them as true and real and who I am. So we, as I said on opening night, if we really pay attention to our inner dialogue, some of the things we tell ourselves are not so helpful. So we might hear ourselves saying, I'm so angry, or I'm so depressed, I'm so bored, I'm such a failure, and so on. Instead of when the mindfulness is stronger, oh, anger is arising. Anger is like this. There's tightness in the jaw. There's buzzing in the mind. Hmm. Painful thoughts. Oh, moment of self-compassion is like this. Ooh, slight sense of relief is like this. And this is a quality of bare awareness that we've been emphasizing. And it's very different from our usual way of relating to our minds. Without any mindfulness training, most people tend to either pay no attention to their thoughts at all until they've got into some kind of trouble or they believe their thoughts completely. So on the one hand, we tend to wrongly believe that our thoughts have no importance, and on the other, we can tend to take them far too seriously. I'm guessing you might have had the experience, maybe on this retreat, of being in a state of relative ease, 
feeling okay, maybe even happy. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, a random negative thought comes in and it feels like the whole world shifts. And we get caught in all kinds of painful, unpleasant emotions, sometimes for hours, maybe even days, all because of one random firing of neurons in the brain. But as our mindfulness gets stronger, we have more capacity to recognize that thoughts are just thoughts. In and of themselves, they don't actually have that much power. They have exactly as much power as we give them. In fact, they're just made up of tiny pulses of electrical activity in the brain. They only have as much power as we give them. And so the more solid we make them, the more weight we give them, the more seriously we take them, generally, to that extent, they cause us stress and distress. The opposite is also true. The more we don't get entangled with our thoughts, the more we can see them as just thoughts, the more freedom we have to choose which ones we do respond to and which ones we simply let go of. So the good news is that challenging thoughts and mind states are a normal expected part of the practice. There's not something wrong with us if we find ourselves assailed by the kind of multiple hindrance attack that I spoke of this afternoon. And we don't have to slog our way through all of these for decades before we start to get any benefit from the practice. We can actually use these challenging aspects of the mind as fuel for it. So remembering if it's in the way, it is the way. The more we can learn to meet these painful states with mindfulness and kindness, then little by little we develop the skill to release the unskillful states and strengthen the skillful ones. And again, I'm pretty confident that that is already happening for all of you over the arc of your whole practice. So whether you've been meditating for a few months, a few years, maybe a few decades, I'm sure, I'll just check. Overall, would you say that you experience fewer afflictive mind states than you used to compared to before you started meditating? Is that true? And when you do experience afflictive mind states, are they generally less intense? don't last as long, and the gaps between them are longer. Does that feel true? So they might not have gone away completely, but there's a general trend in a certain direction that you can recognize actually as a fruit of your practice and hopefully one that um, deepens your trust and confidence that this path is working if you look over the long-term development of it. So that shift from painful to beneficial mental states is already happening to some extent. And we can help the process along by practicing very directly with the mind, bringing thoughts and emotions into the field of our awareness and cultivating a wise relationship to them, not avoiding, denying, ignoring or repressing on the one hand and not feeding, indulging or identifying with them on the other 
and we'll probably do some direct practice with that tomorrow. So for now, I'll just say a little bit about the different types of mental activity that we can bring awareness to. So I, as I said earlier, I, I just have developed a kind of shorthand thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, just to give a sense that there are different aspects of the mind we can pay attention to. And these are pretty broad categories, so you don't need to get too fixated on working out if something is a, a mood or a mind state. But just generally, by thoughts, just like the English word, any kind of mental thought process, any experience that doesn't have much of a bodily aspect to it, but is mostly experienced in the mind. So some people are more verbally oriented and their thoughts tend to be more strings of words or hearing sentences. Other people are a bit more visual. Others, uh, their thoughts appear as mental images or sometimes we can hear music or other types of sounds. All of these are classified as just different kinds of thoughts. As distinct from emotions which, although they have a mental component, often have a physical aspect too. So they're often experienced as a mixture of sensations in the body and mental activity in the mind. So, for example, if we experience anxiety, there might be a sudden hollow feeling in the chest or perhaps clamminess in the hands or shallow breathing. And these physical sensations might be accompanied by a rush of mental activity that a proliferation of agitated thoughts that we recognize as anxiety. And because of the interconnection of body and mind, emotions and thoughts often feed each other. So the unpleasant sensations in the body strengthen the negative reaction in the mind, which can compound the emotion. So being able to separate out the different component parts of the experience often makes it easier to deal with. So emotions are feelings that tend to come and go. They're usually relatively easy to recognize because they have a bit of intensity to them, as distinct from moods, which are more in the background, coloring our experience. And because they're in the background, they're often harder to see. And they sometimes feel like a composite of different types of emotion all sort of mushed together. So it's not always easy to recognize what's going on when we're caught in some, excuse me, some kind of mood. So for example, it's common in English to talk about being in a bad mood. But if we bring mindfulness to that bad mood instead of just staying stuck there, we might investigate, well, what do I mean by a bad mood? We might recognize a low-level feeling of mild depression. And perhaps there are overtones of irritation or frustration, perhaps some flickers of self-judgment thrown in there, and often a whole pile of resistance, unconsciously trying to get rid of the unpleasant experience. So when I was putting this talk together, I was uh, trying to describe the complexity of what is a bad mood, it started to remind me of the way wine lovers often describe wine. And I found this website that generates fake wine descriptions. And it's like, 
The soprano winery merges disguised pickle midtones and a caramelized sushi aftertaste in their 1999 Bordeaux. And in a similar way, we can look at our moods and recognize, okay, there's some underlying sour midtones there with a belligerent yet anxious aftertaste. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously that's joking, but the more we can bring a sense of humor and lightness to what's happening in our minds, the less we dwell on them and the easier it is for them just to release. And then lastly, we have the category of mind states. And this is in a way a grab bag of anything that doesn't fit in thoughts, emotions or moods. So particular types, recognizable aspects of mental experience, such as alertness or dullness, concentration or distractedness, interest or disengagement. So mind states refer more to the overall quality of the mind and they don't generally not have so much of an emotional aspect to them. So you can drop below the sort of surface level of the mind and just even right now as you're sitting listening, are there some identifiable mind states? Is there some alertness? Or is it more in the terrain of dullness? Is there curiosity or boredom? Alertness, disconnection, clarity, fogginess. So again, there's a whole training. Yesterday we were training in body literacy. Likewise, we can train in mental literacy. And this is a skill that we can start to learn how to articulate our inner experience more and more clearly. So in the third establishment of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta, the section on mindfulness of mind asks us to notice when particular mind states are present and when they're absent. So I'd like to read you just a few phrases from the sutta because they convey a particular way of relating to our experience. And how, practitioners, does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? One knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. And then it goes through different qualities like concentrated and unconcentrated and then all the way through to liberated and unliberated. So this, in this section we start by recognizing the presence or the absence of these afflictive states. And it progresses from fairly coarse states like anger and lust and delusion to more subtle and refined states. But I want to highlight how the language here is completely impersonal. The Buddha doesn't say, notice when you are lustful or angry or deluded. 
He doesn't even say, notice if your mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. He simply says, know whether these mind states are present or absent. And right there, the invitation is to understand that these mind states are arising due to conditions, impersonal causes and conditions. So we don't need to hold on to them, identify with them, or get rid of them. Simply know at this stage, are they present or not? So the language is completely impersonal and it's completely impartial. There's an attitude of equanimity built into this approach to looking at the mind. Throughout the list, there's a rhythmic investigation. Is there lust or not? Is a particular mind state present or absent? And again, this is a very different way of our usual way of relating to mind states where we tend to see only one side of the balance to notice only when a mind state is present and not when it's absent. And more specifically, most of us, because of our inbuilt negativity bias, tend to be only notice when a difficult mind state is present and not to notice when it's released, when it's absent. So we might tend to selectively tune in more fully to all our unpleasant experiences and barely even register the pleasant ones. And that's why in the instructions and in many of our individual meetings, I really encourage you to orient to what's going well, to what you can appreciate, to what you can enjoy, partly as a way to balance out this negativity bias. So this is the invitation to notice more than just our, any predominant unpleasant mind states, but also to tune into more subtle, refined, and skillful states of mind, including wisdom itself. So I want to go a bit deeper now into what this term wisdom is pointing to, particularly in terms of our mindfulness practice. Because, as I mentioned the other night, mindfulness is becoming more and more mainstream. And sometimes this deeper level of wisdom is uh, lost when we're using mindfulness simply as an antidote to emotional and mental distress. Because if we use mindfulness to the full capacity of the Buddha's teachings, it has the power not just to be an antidote to stress, but to stop those states from arising in the first place. And it does this through supporting insight, clear seeing into the truth of how things are. The truth that everything is constantly changing. Nothing can give us lasting satisfaction. And there is no fixed, permanent entity at the center of all this that I could call myself. So those of you who are familiar with these teachings and the Pali terminology, you might recognize anybody? Three characteristics. Yeah, anatta is not self. What are the other two? Anicca, impermanence. Unsatisfying. Dukkha, yes, thank you. So... To use slightly different language, everything we experience is impermanent, it's imperfect, and it's impersonal. 
Because everything is constantly changing, it's impermanent. Because it cannot give us lasting satisfaction, it's imperfect. And none of it is our fault. It's impersonal. It's happening due to causes and conditions. And the more deeply we see into these characteristics, the more powerfully they support ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. And the opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of this understanding, the more we suffer. So I'd like to look at them a little bit more closely now in terms of how they apply to our mind states. The first one, impermanence, is can be a powerful ally in reducing all afflictive mind states because we can consciously remind ourselves of the truth of change. Now, often when we're in the grip of a very powerfully afflictive state, don't know about for you, but for me, it feels like this is how it is. This is how it's always been. This is how it's always going to be. We just, time seems to collapse and we get totally stuck in it. But if we have a little bit of mindfulness and wisdom, we can remind ourselves this too shall pass. Maybe not as fast as we would like, but for sure it is going to change. And sometimes just remembering this will change is enough to make it lessen a little bit. And it can also help release us from the grip of trying to control the state, trying to get rid of it. Often, though, the tendency is to collapse into the afflictive state and unconsciously to make it feel more solid and more permanent by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So when we bring mindfulness to the mind and listen to what we're telling ourselves, we often hear things like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any relief. It's constant misery. And words such as always and never are symptoms of what psychologists call absolutist thinking, which is an unhealthy thinking style which is linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. And so if you do notice those kind of absolutist words like always, never, constant, and so on, you might try changing the language to find terms that are more factually true, more accurate. For example, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. I don't know about for you, but for me that feels quite different than saying I'm a highly anxious person. Do you hear that sort of collapsing into a single possibility? I'm an anxious person. Very different than I have a tendency to feel anxiety. So we tend to sort of censor our experience and make it solid and permanent. A few years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was working with somebody and they came into a meeting and they said, the last 24 hours have been sheer, unremitting hell. (laughs) I said, okay, really? Absolutely, yes. Really? From the moment you woke up until now? Yes. So there wasn't in any of that any trace of maybe a neutral experience? Oh, well, after dinner, my cup of tea wasn't bad. 
In fact, I took it out to the porch and I watched the steam rising. And there was this little rainbow that came up in the steam as the sun was setting. And there were all these little birds darting around on the ground. And somebody put out some sunflower seeds and I threw them out to the birds. And it was amazing. I just had this pulse of joy. I'm like, two seconds ago, you told me you were experiencing sheer unremitting hell. But we all do that, but it's just that was a very graphic example of how we censor out and solidify and create a reality uh, without and don't open to the full spectrum of our experience. So sometimes when I try to suggest to people that all of these patterns are constantly changing they try to convince me that i'm wrong and that their anxiety or their anger is constantly present always has been always will be so sometimes there's a tool i use just to help people see through this misperception and i invite people to sort of quantify the intensity of the afflictive emotion on a scale of zero to ten So 10 being the most intense anger, fear, rage, whatever, and zero being total calm. And when people remember to check this throughout the day, they often find that the state that they thought was so permanent and unchanging is actually constantly moving up and down, even in the course of a meeting. And often it's much lower than they might normally notice. And again, this is because of the mind's inherent negativity bias. So using this scale of 0 to 10 can help us to acknowledge, even to notice, when the anxiety or the anger or the fear is reduced or perhaps even times gone completely. And when it has, the invitation is to really let ourselves abide in that, to fully let in how the body, the heart, the mind feel when we're free temporarily of anxiety or anger or jealousy or whatever. So the second of these three characteristics is dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or imperfect, the truth of imperfection. It's also a powerful ally in decreasing afflictive states even though this truth can be a little harder to accept because we're so driven to try to make everything right to get it to be perfect. And most of us, again, put a huge amount of time and energy in trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make all the conditions around us and even the people around us be exactly the way we want them to be. And there's often a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X or Y or Z, everything will be okay and then I'll be happy. And yet in spite of all of that effort, not many of us can say that we've experienced the lasting happiness that we were hoping for. Of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness, But overall, because of the truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable, constantly changing. They're not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And sometimes there's something about the truth of dukkha, of imperfection, that triggers us into even stronger perfectionism. 
And we often bring that same perfectionism to our Dharma practice. And we unconsciously turn the whole thing into a giant self-improvement project, which is unconsciously rooted in aversion, self-aversion, and resistance to the truth of dukkha, of imperfection. And both of these tend to fuel the sense of lack and inadequacy, which is so pervasive in modern societies. But suggesting that we acknowledge the truth of unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean we just give up completely. We don't resign ourselves to being driven by afflictive emotions because, hey, it's all dukkha anyway, what's the point? This is apathy more than true acceptance. So developing a more balanced relationship to afflictive mind states comes as our practice matures. And then we're able to look non-judgmentally at our underlying motivations and to see what we might be able to change and to accept what we can't. So when it comes to working with afflictive mental states, we need to really look out for any resistance to them, any expectation that they shouldn't be happening, they're wrong, they're bad, and they've got to be got rid of ASAP. And instead, we can orient to the understanding that because we're human beings with vulnerable human bodies and vulnerable human hearts and vulnerable human minds, we are susceptible to greed and hatred and delusion at times. This is normal and natural. And at least so far, I haven't met a human being who is completely and utterly 100% free of them. And even though we might understand this in theory, most of us have the tendency to take our own afflictive mind states very personally, to see them as our own unique shortcomings, our own unique weakness, our own unique neurosis, by comparison with everybody else who definitely has all their stuff together. We're the uniquely defective one in the room. And so, again, as we bring wisdom to this, we see that this is a serious distortion of the truth. So now we come to the third of these three universal characteristics, which is anatta, or not-self, the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. There isn't a fixed, solid, permanent self at the center of the universe even though it often feels that way. So the truth of anatta of not-self can be understood on deeper and deeper levels. And it's possible to develop some sense of anatta on a conceptual level and still get practical benefit from it. And one way we can do this is to deconstruct the chain reaction that often happens when we come into contact with stress, distress, suffering. So I think most of you know the famous sutta about the dart, where the Buddha compared the trained person with the untrained person. And he said when an untrained person is shot by a dart, they feel the intense pain of the wound of the dart, and then they sorrow weep, grieve, and beat and lament, beat their breast and lament, adding a whole lot of 
mental reactivity to the physical pain. But the trained person who's shot by a dart only experiences one pain. They only experience the physical pain of the wound. They don't add all that extra proliferation to it. And I often joke that most of us don't stop with two arrows. We add 10, 50, or 100, and that's the proliferation then that we get caught in. We add a whole pile of extra and unnecessary mental distress. So again, in terms of looking at our inner language, we can see how we tend to solidify and personalize our painful emotions. So again, I'm a highly anxious person, or I'm an angry type, or I'm an aversive type, or I'm a trauma survivor, and so on. And these phrases have some partial truths, but often we relate to them as absolute, solid, fixed statements, and they become me, who I am. So again, the invitation is to take out the I, that solid, fixed sense of I at the center of it all, and just acknowledge fear sometimes gets in the way of me standing up for myself, or I'm learning how to navigate a history of having very painful memories come up. So there's many different ways that we can change our inner language to support more openness and ease and freedom. And each time we do this, we're really deepening and strengthening wisdom. So this process that I'm calling befriending the mind is not only a psychological process of understanding our mental and emotional habits, it leads all the way to the highest happiness, the peace of Nibbana. This is the awakened heart-mind that is completely free of greed and hatred and delusion that the Buddha discovered in his own liberation. And that we too can train ourselves to experience moment by moment. So that as we befriend our minds more and more fully, we can experience similar ease and peace and happiness. So on that note, thank you for your kind attention. May we all experience more and more ease, happiness, peace and freedom. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.